Please open your copies of God's Word in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 26. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. And um, this morning we are going to consider verses 17 to uh, 29. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, uh, excuse me, chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. And just for you to have an idea of uh, the timeline and time frame that we are seeing in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 21 of Matthew was uh, more or less maybe Sunday or Monday. And now we are in chapter 26 and it's Thursday, uh, the, first, uh, the, the first day of the Feast of the Passover. Friday, Jesus is going to die. And so we are getting close to his crucifixion, um, his passion, crucifixion, and resurrection. So that's where we are at in the book of Matthew. So with that in mind, please stand to hear the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Verse 17, this is God's word. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, It is I, Lord. He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, It is I, Rabbi. He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave, gave it to his disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many uh, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it, new with you in my father's kingdom. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Celebrations, brothers and sisters, festivities in the name of an important person or, or a great event in history are pretty normal, aren't they? Uh, when Caesar Augustus, for example, entered the province of Galatia, uh, he came with such a might and such power that he destroyed the uncivilized barbarians of the Galatian province and crushed their armies, their armies. The Galatians, uh, very famous for their witch, witchcraft and sorcery, uh, whose army was celebrated because they were afraid of nothing and who boasted in the fact that there was no army in the world who was able to conquer them. So their pride suddenly crushed under the feet of Augustus. And in response, the conquered people became servants of the Caesar. But not only that, because from that day on, they would celebrate the day of their liberation, of their freedom uh, from their barbarian traditions. And in honor to the Caesar, they will worship him as 
their savior in a specific day. Caesar now was their savior. And, and that is simply a pagan reflection of a biblical truth. Humans trying to be like God. But this morning, we do get to see the true Savior. We do get to see the true King of the universe, Jesus Christ. And more specifically, we see him celebrating the Passover, a very special festivity that recalls the mighty acts of God in salvation of his people. So in order to see that, we will divide this portion in three points. Uh, this is becoming common now. Uh, first, the king's command. Second, the king's revelation. And finally, third, the king's sacrament. So the king's command, the king's revelation, and finally, the king's sacrament. Now, allow me to open then the first part, the king's command. And I want you to hear once again verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, it's always interesting, isn't it, uh, to see the behavior of the disciples before the Lord Jesus Christ. The announcement of his imminent betrayal, incarceration, and death has come and gone through the ears of the disciples, almost as if it were a bad memory of a dream that they don't want to remember anymore. What are they thinking? Well, we don't know, and we are not told. Rather, the only thing that we are told is that time follows its path. It is almost time to celebrate the Passover. One day before the big celebration, indeed, and the disciples want to know where they can prepare the party because it's time to celebrate. And, and we shouldn't be surprised by their attitude, should we? Because uh, we can't blame the disciples about being happy about the, the, the party. They are not careless. After all, who can be sad the day before Christmas? Who can be sad the day before a great party? Even if we are given the slightest indications that something is going to be uh, going bad the day after Christmas, we will still be happy about Christmas and the party and the drinking and the eating and everything. Passover is near at hand. And they are all, all excited for the celebration. It's a party. It's a feast. It's looking back to the past where they remember what God has been doing to them and what he did to them in bringing freedom from Pharaoh in Egypt. They were delivered from a certain death. They were delivered from slavery. And they have, given a new, they have been given a new status as God's people, as free people. Who can be sad under those circumstances? The atmosphere around the feast feels so safe after all, especially after this glorious welcoming that the disciples saw on Monday, several days ago in, in, in the week of Jesus, but in chapter 21 for us. The disciples feel no danger in the air. So the most natural thing is to go ahead and get ready for the celebration, isn't it? And with getting ready for the celebration, Jesus agrees. Listen to him. Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. You see, Jesus agrees with the disciples because justice requires it. It is the king of Israel that we are seeing here. And as the better king of Israel, as the representative of his people, not a single letter of the law can be left without fulfillment. He has to fulfill the law. He has to keep the law. 
And in keeping the law and celebrating the Passover, Jesus is showing us how even in the last hours of his life, his aim is not to fulfill his own will, but to fulfill the will of the Father, to fulfill the law and complete every single righteousness. And he completes every single righteousness, not because he's in need of it, but because you and I are in need of it. We can't fulfill the law of God in our own efforts. So what does God do in his infinite mercies? Well, he sends the Son so he can obey perfectly his law in our place. It is because of you and I, brothers and sisters, that Jesus submitted himself to the law of God in order to obey it. It is because of you and I that he became a servant. It is because of you and I that he obeyed the law. He becomes the better Adam, the better Israel, who wanders in this wilderness of this world, flooded with sin, obeying perfectly when Adam and Israel failed. But notice also the tremendous importance of this Passover. It's not just any Passover, like the previous ones that Jesus had been celebrating during his life. It's actually a very important celebration at this point, one that finds the sacrificial system of the Old Testament directly tangled and united with the whole ministry of Jesus Christ. They are together at this point. He ascends towards Jerusalem, knowing that this will be his last Passover, one in which he will become the Lamb of God himself. The angel of death, brothers and sisters, will, will pass one more time over the land. His shadow will cover Jesus himself, while Jesus' blood will be covering our houses forever. Yes, brothers and sisters, while there is darkness in the houses of the Egyptians of this world, there is light in your house because of Jesus. And yet, even in the drama of this approaching final hour in Jesus' life, Jesus has not stopped being who he is, namely the promised king of Israel. And notice how he exercises such prerogative, such uh, a power. His royal dominion is displayed in a very clear manner before us. He gives a clear command to his disciples. They need to find a man and they need to tell him that the Lord needs his house, that the Lord will feast in his place. And did you notice? We don't even have the name of the man. We don't even hear uh, that they have money to pay the man. Nor does Jesus seem to give him any options. He has to obey. All that we hear is this command given to the disciples and the command that has to, that has to be obeyed. Such is the power of the king, congregation of the Lord. A power that not only mends what sin has broken, a power that not only restores what was uh, broken in pieces, but also a power that bends the wills of his people towards freedom, namely to obedience of his law, to obedience to him. And this power is still exercised today, isn't it? When Jesus speaks his commands through the preaching of the word, it is his power that transforms lives, wills, hearts, minds. It is his power that gives new inclinations to our hearts so we happily want to obey him fully and want to hear his voice. In salvation, brothers and sisters, it is the Holy Spirit who walks with us into faith, who gives us repentance, who makes us obedient to his law, who commands us 
to open the hearts, uh, to open our hearts and the rooms in our heart, so Jesus may come and dine with us, and we may celebrate with Him. We're not so much given an option. Did you notice that? When we hear that call, all that we know is that we want to, that we have new will, that we want to prepare a room for Him so He can come and dine with us, so we can welcome Jesus in our lives. This command, brothers and sisters, this setting then opens the path to an intimate dining meal that Jesus the King will have with his disciples. And this is where we will see the King's revelation in our second point. So go with me to uh, verse 20. Listen to verse 20 once again. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. Notice the intimacy of the situation described for for us at this point. No outsiders, as it was common in those days, no outsiders are picking in this celebration. It's closed. And even the time of it, evening, suggests that it's not open to everyone. It is only for his disciples. That is a, familiar, a family meal, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. And you are familiar with those kind of meals, are you not? Is one of those meals in which you are free to talk whatever you want to talk because there is no one outside your family. No pressures, no weird manners, no, not putting your uh, 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 arms over the table, none of that. You are behaving normal. It's just you and your close family, those whom you know better. That, that is what we are seeing here with Jesus and his disciples. But there is more than that going on here. Listen to verse 21. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is the king's revelation, one that opens the hearts of his disciples to the spiritual realities at work around them. Just like the serpent entering the garden of of Eden, in the same way now, the serpent has entered into the community of Jesus Christ through Judas. And though what we see with our natural eyes is a simple meal being shared, Jesus opens the veil for us so we can see what truly is happening behind. The new Adam is about to confront the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he, he will crush the serpent's head. And notice how this eye-opening revelation does in fact affect the disciples' minds and hearts. Look at verse 22. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him one after another, It is I, Lord. Why are they sorrowful? Because Jesus' words have penetrated their hearts. He has shown them that inside their hearts lies also the capacity to betray Jesus. So they are alarmed, and they are humbled right now, and, and they seek now to be helped by Jesus Christ, rescued by him. It is I, Lord. It is I, Lord. It is the humble submission of one that has seen himself in the perfect mirror of the holiness of Jesus Christ and understands that he needs to be rescued and understands that he needs his help in order to be delivered from sin and his inclinations. They call him Lord, recognizing that no other one has the authority to do that in their lives. And that is what God's word does to us, does it not? Confronted with God's word, used by the Holy Spirit to open our hearts, isn't it true that we start to understand how evil and wicked our hearts are? We are hopeless 
without Jesus. Learn from the 11, boys and girls. They recognize that Jesus is an expert in cleaning hearts. He won't reject you when you come to him. He's not surprised about your sins, and he won't get mad at you. Rather, he calls us tenderly into his presence so we can come to him, so we can humbly submit to him. It is I, Lord. Please help me in my incapacities. And yet, it is towards Judas that he is mainly directing his words. We all know that, do we not? His mercy is so great that even the one who has already sold him for 30 pieces of, of silver needs to hear a call to repentance. His mercies are greater than the heavens indeed. Look, verse 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for, for that man if he had not been born. So what is Jesus doing here if not seeking Judas to repent? So he can see his sin and come to Jesus. Here is an evangelical truth for you, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. No matter how hard and how terrible we have fallen into sin, no matter how dark our sins may be, and no matter how evil we may have become at some point, there is always grace in Jesus Christ. Grace that is more powerful than sin. Grace that can cleanse our hearts. The grace of Jesus Christ that will receive you no matter what. Embrace you and forgive you no matter what. And even if you think that your sins are too big for him, guess what? There is no sin that Jesus cannot forgive. But there is also the other side of the coin, is there not? Judas does not, does not seek to surrender to Jesus. And so his condemnation is a very serious one precisely because he has committed a very serious sin of which he doesn't want to repent. Notice how while the 11 almost immediately came to Jesus Christ, it has taken a while for Judas to talk. And his question doesn't even sound sincere, does it? It is even less respectful. Uh, calling someone as a rabbi is not as high and as important as calling someone Lord, especially in the book of Matthew, where he is the king, he is the Lord, Jesus Christ, that is. Even Judas's question uh, has been kind of delayed, hasn't it? He's too busy chewing his piece of lamp, not paying attention to Jesus. Uh, truly, he has been blinded by his sin, and his heart has been hardened. And at last, he speaks, It is I, Rabbi. Oh, by the way, it is I. Sounds empty. Far away from Jesus. Unconcerned with the mother. And the answer doesn't even affect him. Beware of that hardness of heart, congregation. One that tells you that you have done nothing. That you can ignore your sins. That one, that the, the one that finds everyone else's at blame except yourself. That moves you to look to the other way while Jesus is calling to you. Beware of that. Do not run away from Jesus. Do not embrace your sin because it will only kill you. It will only lead you to destruction while Jesus is still here waiting to receive you. And it seems though as if Jesus' words have fallen into deaf ears with Judas. But that is how it's supposed to be, isn't it? The king has been betrayed and his time is running short. 
That is why Matthew shows us uh, the centerpiece of this text, namely the king's sacrament. This is the most important part of this text, if, if you will. And this is as well our third point. Look to verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take it, this is my body. Here is where we see the actions of Jesus as the better king. The better king, I say, because he doesn't simply repeat the Passover, but rather he rearranges the Passover with a new meaning. You see, the Passover celebrated the victory of God over Egypt. And, and, and through a bloody sacrifice, it affirmed to Israel that they needed a substitute to die in their place. But this meal of the king is not a sacrifice. There is no association with the lamb that died. Jesus doesn't say to the lamb, this is my body. Rather, it is a celebration. Bread is taking the place of the broken body of Jesus, symbolizing the end of every single sacrifice. Bread given to them and to us, brothers and sisters, because Jesus is that final sacrifice. Never again will God's people need to see the lamb being slaughtered and being killed because Jesus died once and for all. So it is not fitting for Jesus' new community to use that image anymore, that of the lamp dying again. The lamp is replaced for a better image, bread. Bread. Bread now symbolizes his body. For the disciples, the bread anticipates what will happen with Jesus on the cross. As the better king, he has come to bring a better redemption, one that, that was typified in the Exodus in Egypt, namely, our redemption from slavery to sin and our redemption from the worst Pharaoh, namely the devil. Now look to verses 27 and 28. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Not only bread, as you heard, but wine. Wine that takes up the place of shed blood. But wine also symbolizes the abundance of God's blessings. And the language of this passage is simply wonderful. This is the very same language that Moses is using in, in Exodus. After Israel has received uh, the law in, in, in the Mount of Sinai, uh, Moses comes before the people of Israel and he sprinkles them with blood. In other words, Jesus here is the new Moses. And as the new Moses, he is the better prophet. And as the better prophet, he's the one who sheds his blood for his people. A blood for a better covenant. And on the cross, he has sealed our salvation with his blood. We now are sprinkled with his blood. Just like Israel was covered with the blood of the sacrifice, so now God's people are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, the better sacrifice. But both of them, bread and wine, are actions of faith. Actions in anticipation of what will happen with Jesus. The disciples have not seen Jesus on the cross yet. They have not witnessed his death on the cross. But they are already celebrating it in faith. Anticipating the victory of the king. That is the wonder of the sacrament of the king, brothers and sisters. While the disciples partake in faith uh, in the sacrifice yet to come... We, God's people, partake of the sacrament looking back to what has already happened once and for all in the cross. 
And it can be otherwise, can it? The kingdom of God brings with it radical changes in the history of salvation, continuities and discontinuities. In Jesus, history has moved from shadow to reality, from promises to fulfillment. And even though the, riches, the rituals of old in the Old Testament look richer and fuller and more awe-amazing things, the spiritual significance of what we do today is richer, it's fuller, it's better, and it is ought to awe us and amaze us of what we are seeing and doing. In other words, through the bread and wine, we see a better, visible, tangible picture of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. That is why we don't have sacrifice. <laughs> That is why uh, Jewish celebrations and festivities no longer apply to us. The king has given us something better. He has given us signs and seals that testify to us of his triumph over death, sin, the world, the devil. Signs and seals to be a spiritual nourishment to our souls of the reality of the forgiveness of sins, but also signs and seals that are reflections of the future. A portal of eternity casting its light here, now, in this time and space. Here, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink of it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here Jesus amazes our senses with the eschatological reality of the sacrament, the final things, if you will, of the reality of the sacrament. Because the sacrament of the king is also the anticipation of a feast that is yet to come. A feast, brothers and sisters, a party, boys and girls, in which Jesus himself will sit down once again at the table. And not any kind of party, a party in which communication to Jesus will be deeper and richer. This is the beatific vision. It's unending communion, immersing ourselves in who Jesus is, feeding ourselves from, from him, eternally receiving him, beholding him, exalting him, enjoying him forever. But a party nonetheless, boys and girls. Because just as in the meal you have Jesus and his disciples celebrating the mighty works of salvation of God in the past and at hand in the cross for the disciples, the time will come again for us, you and I, to sit at the table with Jesus to celebrate his victory over evil. That is what is going on here in the text, Congregation of the Lord. The sacredness of this room and of this moment lies in the fact that the King himself is filling our hearts, minds, and senses with this overflowing magnificence of his sacrifice on the cross and tying it with the sacrament that he has instituted for us, showing us that the life of the kingdom is richer and better, fuller, deeper, The meal is a celebration of victory. Victory, brothers and sisters, because Jesus dies as a conqueror and he rises up again triumphant and in awaiting the time for us to join with him in an unending celebration. Who knows what the immense riches of heavenly bliss will be? I don't. Who can tell us with certainty the overwhelming awe that we will feel at the Lamb's feast? Yes, We will feast, brothers and sisters. We will feast. And wine, as the Old Testament says, will flow from Zion. 
But the feast will be a feast because Jesus will be there and we will be with him and we will dwell forever into his presence. Do you look forward to that day? May we look forward to that day, brothers and sisters. May we look in anticipation of that glory that we will enjoy forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the heavenly picture that we have this morning before us and that we have the privilege of celebrating every single week. Uh, please, uh, we pray that you may aid us to uh, take the sacrament seriously. Uh, the fact that we do it every single day, every single week, Lord, may be a blessing for us, may be a good reminder of what you have done, of uh, what you are about to do in the Feast of the Lamb and of your power with us even now. Renew us, Lord. Uh, bless us through it, as you have done through the preaching of the word already. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.